how are you finding this book of Ecclesiastes? We are a fourth week into it, I think, uh, and it's been quite the ride so far, I think, so far. Um, it's a book that certainly talks to us in a way that I don't think we're used to being talked to by Bible books. I think it's really smashed us in the face with some truths that we sort of all know, but don't really like thinking about that often. So how have you found it? How has this book been for you so far? Because the teacher, uh, that's the writer of this book, the teacher, he's reminded us that life is short. We know that to be the truth, but he's reminded us of it very clearly. We will die soon. And therefore, it's important that we live life well. That's the, the theme we've come up with for this book so far. Life is short, so live it well. But perhaps it's probably more accurate when you read through the book of Ecclesiastes to say that we need to live life wisely. Wisdom is a really big theme throughout this book. It comes up again and again and again. And this book is really him showing us what wise living looks like. So perhaps we should say that life is short, so live it wisely. And he's shown us that wise living so far means don't expect too much. From the things that you've got in this life, whether that is football, Xboxes, marriages, money, whatever it is, knowledge, pleasure, power, don't expect too much of all those things because they're going to disappear with you as well. Instead, see all of those things in your life as gifts from God designed to point us to him and to the eternal pleasure that only he can give us and provide. They're not meant to point to themselves as pleasures themselves. They're meant to point us to the infinite pleasure that can only be found in him. And when we grasp that, only when we grasp that, can we enjoy God's good gifts properly, which is how we are to live life. And then last week in chapter 3, we saw that wise living also means trusting God for the times that we live in and live through. We have a good, just, perfect and righteous God and we can trust him. We've got very little or no control in our lives, have we? And the times that we live through, whether they're good, bad, happy, sad, poverty, famine, whatever it may be, we've got no control over that relatively. But God sees the big picture of our lives and we can trust him completely. Even the wrongs that do happen in our lives and that might never go fixed, we can trust him because one day we will stand before him beyond the sun, leaving this life under the sun, and justice will occur then if nowhere else. Our hope is never in justice now, it is in justice then. So life is short. We need to live it wisely. We're not to expect too much of the things of this life, but we are to enjoy them as God's good gifts properly and trust him for the times we live in. If you've not been with us the last few weeks, that's what we've seen so far in a very brief summary. All the talks are on the website. I'd encourage you to go and have a listen to them. They've been really helpful and challenging. But today, in this chapter, chapter 4, the teacher speaks to this crowd who've gathered to listen to him. That's what Ecclesiastes means, by the way. It's just a, a crowd gathering to hear a teacher. That's what that word means. We're part of that crowd. And he tells us, I think a summary of this chapter would be this. Living wisely means sharing life. Living wisely means sharing life. Life. Now we're going to see this worked out in different scenarios throughout this chapter, but that's his overall message in the chapter. Living wisely means sharing life. And we're going to start by seeing that he tells us that by sharing life, what he means by that is sharing our comfort. We are to share our comfort. You might think, hang on Dan, that's verses 1 to 3. These are some of the bleakest verses I've ever read. 
what on earth are you talking about? Let's read these again. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. This teacher looks around the world, everywhere he's been and he sees extortion, he sees abuse, he sees manipulation, he sees the crushing of the vulnerable and he sees that those people who are being oppressed have got no one who is willing or able to bring them any comfort. This is certainly something that Jesus felt while he was here on earth. In Matthew 9, we read about him wandering around through the towns and villages, and it says this in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the crowds who are around him, that they're harassed, that they're being oppressed, they're being extorted by those who should be caring for them, and he has compassion on them. Now, that word compassion means a deep physical pain and an anguish for these people that he loves. He physically hurt because of the people he could see. And that's, that's the way the teacher feels, isn't it? Have a look down at verses two and three. Horrific verses, really. And I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil under the sun. Strong words, right? Have you ever felt something like this? Have you ever felt this kind of pain when you look at the horrors around this world? Have you ever picked up the newspaper? Have you ever had that text message or that phone call? Have you ever been to the safeguarding training or just lived long enough to feel this kind of pain? We so often want a life that's free from pain, don't we? We hope for a life that's free from pain. But frustratingly, there are only two places in the entire Bible where that exists. The very first two chapters and the very last two chapters. We're living in the middle of the book. We should not be expecting a pain-free life, but there is pain everywhere and that's hard to live with. And this anguish can be a thing we all regularly feel, some of us more than others. But it's completely biblical to feel that way. Job says it exactly as we saw last year. Job chapter 3 verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth? Job says. Or die as I came from the womb. It's better to have died as a baby than it would be to live through this. Have you ever felt that? Life is painful and hard. And expecting anything else is only going to leave us disappointed. But... That thankfully, that isn't the teacher's emphasis here. That's not his biggest issue. That's not really what he's focusing on. The thing he's particularly bothered is that there's no comfort for those people who are being oppressed. Those people for whom life is the hardest, he sees them and they're comfortless. That's why he repeats that in verse 1, they have no comfort, which is also what moved Jesus back in Matthew chapter 9. So when he sees these crowds around him, Jesus, and he's moved in his inner being, what does he say to his disciples? Go and give them food banks. Provide food banks for them. That'll, hang on, go and offer them counselling. That's what they need more than anything else. Go and march and picket against their oppressing rulers. Go and build cheap housing so they'll all have nice, give free internet to everybody. Is that what Jesus says? Now he says this in verse 37 and 38, if this works. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, pray then, that the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the harvest field. Jesus knows that, as Lawrence told us earlier, a suffering world doesn't first and foremost need to be relieved of its suffering. What they need is the gospel. A suffering world needs comfort. The only comfort that can give any lasting hope and help is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus. The comfort that these people that Jesus saw needed is the comfort that the teacher reminds us all of back in chapter 3, verse 17 in Ecclesiastes. Just turn back a page and have a look at chapter 3, verse 17. This is the ultimate comfort that people suffering need. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Abraham, back when he's wrestling with God, back in Genesis, uh, says, wrestling with whether God should destroy a city or not, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Our judge will do what is right. And that is the comfort that a suffering world needs to hear more than anything else. The challenge is, do we believe this? Do we believe the gospel is true, first of all, that really Jesus Christ came down to earth, left the eternity beyond the sun, lived the perfect life that we could never live to win for us through his death, our salvation and complete forgiveness, even though we don't deserve it, and now stands before God, resurrected in heaven, testifying that we are accepted because of his blood? Do we believe that, first and foremost? And do we believe that's what other people need to hear more than anything else? When we see these horrific news stories and terrible tragedies happen in our lives, is that what we're praying for? Do we pray? Or are you like I am so often, just tempted to switch off? Because it hurts too much. The teacher and Jesus tells us that we should be praying for more gospel workers to be sent where they're needed the most. That's not to ignore the physical needs. Again, Cure Hospital is a wonderful example of that. Sorting the physical needs with the hope of leading people to the only one who can really, really save them and bring them comfort. But are we praying for more gospel workers predominantly? That's why we're wanting to do what we're doing in Ayers Monsell. That's why the Wicks and the Wallaces are planning on uprooting their entire lives and moving to millions of miles away around the world, maybe not millions, where people are oppressed and are suffering and they need not so that we and they can make opportunities to offer the only comfort that can make any long-lasting difference. Now, I'm not saying we should all move to Ethiopia or Esmonsal. That isn't the case. But this task of sharing comfort with a world around us is something that we're all called to do as Christians. Wherever we are, whoever we are, and whoever is hurting. So when our friends and our family and our brothers and sisters here at church hurt... We need to be like the teacher and empathize with the pain, acknowledge how bad the pain is, join people in their pain. But then as soon as comfort is wanted and available to give, share the only comfort that can offer long-lasting healing instead of just masking the pain while they're still alive. Sharing life, the teacher tells us, means sharing the comfort that we have as Christians. If you are not a Christian here today, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we would love to talk about this more with you. There is nothing more important we would want to talk about. Forget football, forget politics, forget the news, anything. Over church lunch, grab someone, talk about this. How can the gospel speak comfort to somebody like Matt and Lisa talked about who've lost their baby? How? 
ask us about this. Ask them about this. The gospel really is the only comfort that anybody needs more than anything else. You need to empathize with pain, but be willing to offer the comfort that we have. So sharing life means we're to share our comfort with others. But the teacher also goes on and he says, and I really struggle to have to title this one, so bear with me. Sharing life means sharing our satisfaction from verses four to eight. Sharing life means we're to share our satisfaction. So to show this, the teacher gives us two object lessons, and I hope you'll see where I'm going with this. Firstly, verse four, I saw that all toil and achievements spring from one person's envy of another. Now, by toil and achievement, he doesn't just mean like work and jobs and studying. I think he means just everything that we put any effort and energy into in life, anything that we really focus upon. But this feels like a really broad generalization, doesn't it? All toil and achievement spring from envy. All right, teacher, chill out. But if we think simply about envy as just being wanting what we see other people have, well, that's kind of true, isn't it? I would only know about certain things I would have wanted if I'd have seen them in the first place. If I didn't know about stuff, I wouldn't want it. So there is kind of a truth to this fact. I would never have learned to play the guitar if two older guys in my youth group at church weren't playing the guitar already. I mean, my dad did, but no one follows their dad, do they? But so what are the reasons that we also often have for doing and working and striving towards things in our life? Now, there might be good, non-sinful, non-envious reasons for it, but is there possibly a root of envy in any of these things? It's worth us thinking about it. It's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, they've got this, so I want that. I should have as good or better a life than they do. Oh, my children need to be better educated than I was or they were. Oh, I deserve to have this holiday. Everybody else has holidays. Why don't I? How often and how easily does being as good as or better than the people around us influence how we spend our time and energy? Or perhaps to put it another way, how often are our disappointments because we don't get the stuff we wish we did that other people have? Especially in our social media world, this is all too common, isn't it? You go online, you see these amazing snapshots of people's amazing lives. Oh, things are so happy and great. Oh, my life isn't. I'm just sat in a bedroom. And we can be jealous and angry and bitter about the lives we don't have, that people are pretending to have online. It's not real. It's only the highlight reels. But we drive, we fuel envy and jealousy. Or are we perhaps those people online that are fueling the envy and jealousy in others? Could we perhaps be wiser in the things that we share online? Because there are two extreme reactions that the teacher says can come from this. Uh, firstly, inactivity. Have a look at verse 5. Inactivity. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Strap in, because literally this verse means fools fold their arms and eat their own flesh. Oh, a lovely bit of cannibalism for a Sunday morning. I don't think that's what's for church lunch. The fool sees all that he wants. He has the envy and thinks, oh, I'll never get that. So he just folds his arms and does nothing. And ultimately, the teacher tells us that is self-destructive. It's like eating your own flesh. He's never going to earn enough to get that car that he wants or the phone that he wants or the house that he wants. So what does he do? Well, he either despairs of trying at all and just gives up, wastes his potential, self-destruction, or he instead just whacks it all on credit cards self-destruction. Seeing the lives and successes of other people leads him to inactivity, either have it anyway or give up. 
and it's like eating his own flesh, self-destruction. But the other extreme from inactivity is overactivity. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. We all know this person, don't we? Even if we don't know them, we know the type of person we're talking about, that caricature we all know. Somebody works so hard to get ahead in life, but as we saw the other week, we can never get enough of what we don't really need. So this guy's never content. He's never satisfied. And he works, and he works, and he works to get whatever it is that he wants. But at what cost? He's all alone. He has neither son nor brother. All of those relationships he should have valued, gone. Maybe we don't know someone quite as extreme as that, but we know people that fall into that category. We, we have a friend, I'm going to call him Bill for this story, but he is a real person. Bill is very, very high up in an international, worldwide, global company. He's easily a multimillionaire. To get that high up, he's had to sacrifice a fair amount of time with his family, so they've got a house in Manchester. He spends five days a week or more in either London or currently New York. He's got four children, grown-up children, who've never gone without anything they wanted. You know, the sort of, I'd like a pony, okay. That sort of thing. They live in this massive house in Manchester with One Direction singers down the road and premiership footballers over the road. Like they've got the dream. And then his oldest son had a child. And when it, his, Bill was chatting to him about advice for career and things, his son said to him, no offence, Dad, but I don't want to be a dad like you. I want to be around for my son. I want, I want him to know me. I think those might be some of the saddest words I could ever hear from Aoife. This person works so hard to provide everything we think we need for our children, but what is needed most wasn't provided. So let's be realistic. Maybe we're not in either of those categories of extreme at the moment, but which camp do you most likely fall into? If one of those extremes were to arrive in your life, which would it be? Are you prone to inactivity? Or are you prone to overactivity? Are you prone to folding your arms and ruining yourself? Or overworking and pushing everyone away and not really investing in the things you should be investing in? Where do you fall on this spectrum? Because what the teacher says about both of these is in verse 8. This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Both of these things, inactivity and overactivity, they're just breath. That's what we've said meaningless means. Breath, vapour. They'll be gone in a moment and you'll be dead. It's a daft way to use our time. But he also offers us an alternative, thankfully. He doesn't just leave us with those two criticisms. Look at verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. Tranquility. Peace. Rest. Contentment, we might call that. It's better to live a life content with what we have, with what God has provided for us, and then empty our second hand to be generous towards other people than to live a life constantly striving to fill up both hands so we've got both of our hands full all the time. The teacher says it's far better to be satisfied with what we have now and be generous with the rest. Now, I've got to be realistic. There's going to be some people in this room for whom money is tight. Money is a real issue. We've been there. I remember living uh, when we first got married, like weighing out the rice every day to make sure we had enough to last us till we could afford the next shop living hand-to-mouth almost. 
And that is the thing we need to be aware of. And I don't think this is particularly talking to people who are struggling and striving and being wise with their money. But the truth is, this whole thing of being satisfied is really hard, isn't it? Like We don't live in a satisfied age. We don't live where our adverts come on and go, you're fine, well done. <laughs> We're always being sold everywhere. You need more, you need better, otherwise you're a pathetic, smelly loser who no one will ever love. Oh. <laughs> so if being satisfied is something that you struggle like me with, I just want to share four steps that I think might really help us as individuals, as a church, deal with our dissatisfaction and that tendency to overactivity or underactivity. So firstly, I think it's really important that we learn to confess. If you are struggling with this, to be honest, any struggles, confess it. Tell God how dissatisfied you're feeling. Tell God what that thing is you're dissatisfied about. Don't pretend to God that I'm fine, Lord. He knows you're not. (laughs) He can see your heart and your thoughts. He knows you better than you know yourself. So tell him your worries. Tell him those things you desire, whether they're good or right or not, because he knows them. We don't need to hide anything from him. He knows our hearts, so keeping our deepest desires is pointless. And then secondly, repent of those. Repent of those. That means saying sorry to God, admitting where the sin comes into these things to our desires. Apologize to him for fixating on these things more than we should. Admit that our sinful hearts chase after these things far too quickly. Ask for his help to resist the temptation to either laziness or overactivity to get what we want. And ask for his help to turn around, to run away from those things and live differently. We need to admit that sin does play a part in our emotions and our reactions. We're not just passive products of our environment. We need to repent and say sorry for those things where we are sinning and our reactions are bad. But then thirdly, pray. Now you might think, hang on Dan, that's what you've been doing in confessing and repentance, right? Praying. Well, yes, but also a bit more. Praying, I think, really means getting stuck into the Bible and praying the truths in the Bible back to God so they go through our hearts and through our minds. So get stuck in to the Bible where God will show you how trustworthy he really is and pray those things to him. Ask him to show you how futile building up treasures here on earth really is. Get stuck in to see the God who's promised he will never leave you or forsake you and who will provide everything you need in and through Christ Jesus. Pray those truths back to God. Ask him to help you believe them more. Pray, read, and see the God who leads your life through seasons of abundance and seasons of drought and who you can trust through every single one of those. Look to Jesus more than anything else. If our enemy, and we have got an enemy, we need to be realistic about this, if our enemy, the devil, can get our eyes lowered to ground level, if he can get us to look at the things in this world more than Jesus to find our contentment and our satisfaction and fulfillment, then he knows he's already most of the way to getting us to disobey. So fix your eyes on Jesus more than anything else through his word, read his word, pray it back to God, and look at something more beautiful than any of the stuff on this earth, even when you don't feel like that's true. (laughs) Do it anyway. And then fourthly, do it. Just go out and live that life you've just prayed about. Now, I don't want to mean simplistic about that, because you're going to fail in that, but go into your life. Be aware of your heart attitudes and this temptation to dissatisfaction or whatever the sin is you're dealing with. Fight those sinful desires every time you're aware of them. Win the little battles when you see them. 
with God's help and with his strength, win those little battles, fight them, don't ever let them beat you, and the bigger war will get increasingly smaller. And then, when you do fail, which we all will over and over again until we get to heaven, do this again. Because <laughs> the wonderful thing about the Christian life is that we don't have to be perfect to be Christians. We don't have to be perfect to be forgiven by God. In fact, you can only be forgiven if you've got something to be forgiven of. The wonderful truth about the Christian life is you are not perfect, but Jesus was, and he won your forgiveness for you. So you can have confidence because he's not dead anymore. He rose again, that we have strength to defeat these battles when they arise. We have strength to overcome these sins when we sense them, and that God will complete the work that he starts in us. We thought a lot over the weekend as elders about this idea that actually the Christian life is one of progress, not perfection, progress. Make progress with God's help over these sins. Confess, repent, pray, do. And God will help us to become more and more like Jesus, which will show off to the world the comfort that we know, which is what everyone needs in the first place. So sharing life means sharing comfort, and it also means sharing our satisfaction. But we're going to see finally that sharing uh, life means sharing our lives. And I know that feels like it's saying the same thing twice, but I think it's much more specific than the general life, individual lives. So we often hear these verses, verses uh, from nine onwards, read out at weddings or perhaps in sermons about marriage, which might make them seem, if you're not married, well, they're not for me. But that's not true. So unmarried people, these verses are entirely for you. Because the teacher here uses a language of traveling now to make a point. So verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, well, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. It's better for two people to travel on a long journey together in these days particularly than just one person alone. Because if one person falls over, breaks their leg, falls down a well, falls into a ravine, well, they've got someone to help them. There's no texting in those days. You can't shout out for help if no one's nearby. So if you've got someone with you, you've got help. If you're on your own, it's a disaster. Similarly, verse 11. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Again, often used in marriage sermons um, about certain <clears throat> nocturnal activities. But that's not what the teacher's getting at here. He's, again, thinking of traveling, overnight traveling, camping. And he's a thinking that during those cold nights, and it gets bitterly cold in the Middle East during these nights, traveling alone could be freezing, fatal even. But traveling with someone else, well, you've got extra body heat to help keep you warm, whether that is just in a tent that gathers the warmth together or just lying next to each other. Now, that's something our culture sniggers at, laughs a little bit at, but completely normal for people in this culture to do. Sharing the journey provides vital warmth. And then verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Again, often used in marriages to talk about any God at the center of a marriage, and that is true. But again, not what he's talking about here. He's talking about self-defense. If one person's on their own is attacked, well, they've got less chance of defending themselves than if two people were together. And you know what? Three people are better than two people. I think the implication here is four people's better than three the more people you have on this journey with you, helping you, supporting you, the safer you are. What the teacher's telling us is that it isn't wise to live life alone. No man is an island or woman. We weren't meant to fight our battles alone. 
We aren't meant to defend ourselves from attack on our own. And I don't know about you, but that's a challenge to me. That's a challenge to me because you can't walk with me on a journey if I don't tell you where I'm going. You can't help me get up if I never dare tell you I've fallen down. You can't keep me warm when my faith is cold if I never tell you that my faith is cold. You can't uh, fight my battles against sin and temptation with me if I don't tell you where I'm weak and prone to attack or when I'm feeling under attack. This is a challenge to me and I hope to a lot of us to dare to be more open about our lives and our weaknesses to share these battles with each other. We talked last week with the students um, about maybe we could read a Bible with them. One hour a fortnight would be wonderful, and I was delighted to see lots of people signed up for that. But it made me think, why are we limiting it just to students? <laughs> like, I've often wondered, and I've thought this a lot over the last 18 months, why did it take till I got on staff before I started reading the Bible with my friends? <laughs> why did that happen? Why am I still so scared as well about admitting when I'm cold or fighting the battles or falling down spiritually? And it made me think, why am I not more desperate for this? Why are we as a church not more desperate for this kind of relationship with people here? Could it perhaps be that in our Christian lives, we're more like the person who is overactive but underfriended? Might we be living this Christian life too alone? See, living wisely means sharing life with people the people that God's put around us. So could we all be thinking and praying today of somebody we can meet with or ask to meet with just for an hour a fortnight to read the Bible and pray together? Someone to walk this Christian life a little bit more with. The teacher is wanting to tell us that is the wisest way to live. The Christian life is not one that was ever meant to be lived in isolation, but in meaningful, helpful, honest and productive community. Now, I know some of you hear this and could well be thinking, yeah, that's all right for you, Dan. This is your job. You've never did this before. Yeah, you're right. I wish I'd done it sooner. I wish I had done this uh, before now. Perhaps it would have kept me from some of the failures that I fell into in my earlier Christian life. But I also know that the people who had the biggest impact on my Christian life growing up were those people who did do this who got alongside me, not even, even in an overt, let's sit down and read the Bible. But I think of my best man, my best friend. All he'd do is just say, hey, Dan, it's a Saturday night. You're 14 and a bit annoying, but do you want to go play pool together? And we'd go over and spend hours just playing pool. And I'd learn the gospel from him. And I'd learn what being a Christian was through just spending time with him and listening to his wisdom. So what encouragement could you be to somebody else? And what encouragement could someone else be to you? I also imagine there's probably some people sitting here thinking, when? I would love to do this sort of thing. I'd love to do more of this. But when? The truth is, I don't know. I'm not you. But this is really good stuff to be thinking about, isn't it? This is really helpful stuff to be chatting with our husbands, wives, friends, home groups, the elders about. It would be wonderful. It might not be something we're all able to get involved in right now. And that's okay. But this is something we should be thinking about and considering. But there may be people here thinking, no one would want to do this with me. No one would want to do this with me. Other people, yeah, I get that. Not me. If you're thinking that, I want to say that's a lie. That is 100% not true. In the new family that God is creating through his son and through the gospel, there are no disposable parts. 
There's no appendix in the body of Christ. Not even you and not even me. This is not about me wanting to condemn people. Do more, work harder. I know there are some extremely busy people whose lives are incredibly full at the moment and this might feel like another thing I'm trying to be emotionally blackmailed into doing. The truth is that at different ages and stages of our life, these things are more or less likely or possible, aren't they? But it's always worth thinking, are there good things, right things, that I might need to give up, even though I enjoy them, to live this life alongside somebody else who might need it and benefit from it? Living this way isn't stupid. The world will say, you're crazy. Go and do those things you enjoy. Don't get involved in these losers. But God doesn't say that. Living this life is actually the wisest life possible. And he ends this chapter with a kind of parable to demonstrate it. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through it. About this young, uh, poor person who's wise because he gathers people around him. He has these friends. He's able to overthrow a king. But the warning in this is when it says this king was unable to heed the warning. He's so stuck in his ways, he's unable to heed the warning of what is happening with this young youth. Do we risk being like this foolish king who doesn't know how to to heed the warning offered in passages like this to live wisely? It's something worth thinking about. So what sort of life are we going to live? What sort of church are we going to be? Are we going to be wise or are we going to be foolish? Are we going to be people who actively seek to comfort others with the comfort of the gospel, along with other things, but more importantly than other things? Will we be a group of people who use our time selflessly to share the satisfaction that God provides for us through the certainty of his sovereignty? Or will we be selfishly inactive or selfishly overactive? Both are damaging. And will we be a group of Christians of people who want to live in community with others, sharing joys, troubles and hardships and battles I think that's the challenge the teacher lays before us in this chapter we need to remember from this book so far that life is short we need to live it wisely that means we're not to expect too much of the things in this life but to enjoy God's good gifts properly instead that also means trusting God for the times that we live in and live through and remember that living wisely means sharing life with others that's the life Jesus for us, uh, lived for us to win us back to him. Let's be thinking about how we can live more this way to draw more people to him.